so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. As culture changes, ministry leaders inherit both new opportunities and new challenges. At the SPC pre-conference, J.D. Greer discusses what these new contexts mean for ministry leaders today and how we can be faithful to God's calling. We hope you find this message helpful. The way these conferences tend to work is that they assign you a title or something like that, and it's usually pretty broad. It's several months in advance, uh, and they typically don't tell you much about it. You're just supposed to guess what you think they mean by that title and what they're looking for, and then you pray that nobody else has picked the same passage and the same topic that you have uh, for this. And so the title that they gave to me was The Gospel and the Future of Christianity, which you realize, of course, is pretty broad. But what I think it means is that they want me to talk about some of the new challenges, some of the unique opportunities that we have for the gospel in this generation and how we can best as pastors and leaders and um, ministry leaders in our churches, how we can take advantage of those. But I want to show us how um, the Bible instructs, um, I speak from the perspective of a pastor, um, and I know not all of you are pastors, but how we are to take advantage of that and how we um, engage our culture and how we engage in ministry. So I want us to take us to Acts 16 in your Bible. Uh, If you got it, uh, it'd be a good time to pull it out Um, because Luke, tracing the journeys of the Apostle Paul, shows us, I believe, in Acts 16, the three ways that the gospel expands in particularly secular cities. You know, when you step back and you consider the success of the early church in the first century, it really is remarkable. Um, The early church had no power. They had no positions of privilege. They had no resources, no endowments, no celebrity endorsements, yet Christianity spread like crazy. And the early church did not even enjoy a good reputation. That was mainly because of the lies or slander that was often told about them. Jews and Romans alike considered the Christians to be anarchists and atheists who wanted to overthrow the social order, to overthrow all civic religion and public morality because they refused to tolerate idols. Uh, The Romans uh, particularly accused the Christians of having really deviant sexual practices because they brought together people as equals in close community in a way that that was unheard of in the ancient world. And they were always talking about this kind of family love. They'd been reunited together in this uh, community of equals and it was just strange. So they thought it was accompanied by weird sexual practices. And then there was the outrageous charge that the early Christians were cannibals because they talked about chewing on the flesh and the blood during their worship gatherings. So they had all kinds of misperceptions. It, we're not the first group of people, Christians by the way, that, um, that have really been damaged in the, the, the public eye, that's what they experienced. Yet despite all of this, scholars say that by 325 AD, over half of the population of the Roman Empire had confessed Christianity. The book of Acts seems to show us that 
the key, the key in this expansion was that every single person, um, not just a handful of specialized apostles, were the ones that were carrying the message. Um, this is a tad bit off topic, but it's going to set up kind of what we're going to do in Acts 16. But um, uh, when you study the, 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 the spread of Christianity in those, that first century, what is remarkable is the anonymity of it. Stephen Neal, the, the famous church historian, says that, that of the three great church planting centers, the kind of Christian capitals at the end of the first century that have been established. He said, what's remarkable is that we don't know who founded the church in any one of those three places. Um, He said, you got Antioch, Alexandria, and Rome. Those are your three. We have no idea who planted the churches in Antioch, Alexandria, and Rome. The story of the planting of the church in Antioch occurs in Acts chapter 11. And all it says is some brothers showed up filled with the spirit and they planted a church there. Some brothers is Luke's way of saying a bunch of guys who's are not even important enough for me to tell you their names because they're not going to show up again in Christian history. Um, uh, They planted a church that would one day send out the Apostle Paul. Um, Acts 28 tells you a little bit about the founding of the church in Rome. Uh, There's almost a little bit, um, by the way, of kind of irony in the way that Acts ends because here you got the Apostle Paul that for 13, 14 chapters has been dead set on preaching the gospel, preaching Jesus where he's never been named. And he he wants to get to Rome, the capital of the Roman world, so that he can get the gospel established there and so after shipwreck and, and uh, beatings and being bitten by snakes, he finally shows up in Rome, drags his tired body into Rome after finally getting there, and he's greeted, Acts 28, 15, by the brothers. Same group of unnamed guys who, you know, showed up there, filled with the Spirit, planted a church. They're like, Paul, finally, you're here. We've been waiting on you. Uh, you know, write us a book or something. I don't know. Way, we'll contribute in whatever way you can. But it was, it was anonymous, the way that the early church spread through ordinary people um, carrying the gospel. Uh, let me just say that we, I think, just as background to Acts 16, have not really taken this seriously um, in the church. Um, Jesus would say it this way, John 16, 7. Um, Nevertheless, he says, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage, your benefit that I go away because unless I go away, then the the counselor, the helper won't come to you. Um, you Only if I go to the Father will I send the Holy Spirit. You know, you you just take a step back and, and just think about the absurdity of what Jesus was saying to them and how it must have sounded to the first people to hear that. Imagine that Jesus Christ had been your companion for three years. I've sometimes asked our church, what would that feel like to have Jesus as your ministry coach and companion? If Jesus was on your church staff, I mean, what's it like after a hard day of ministry, you come back, you got a theological question, bam, Jesus answers it. Right? You don't have to consult books. You just ask him. Uh, you, uh, uh, you, you go to a small group and they run out of checks mix. Bam, Jesus multiplies the checks mix so that there's 12 baskets left over. Your dog dies, bam, Jesus raises your dog back from the dead. Your cat dies, Jesus digs a hole to help you bury the cat to get rid of that thing forever, right? I mean, that's, okay, that's probably not exactly what it would be like for Jesus to be, but you understand the point is like, it's clearly an advantage to have Jesus as a ministry companion, yet imagine what it sounded like to the apostles for Jesus to say, it's to your advantage that I go away. It's to your advantage that I go away because only then would you get the Holy Spirit. Here's the question you should ask. If you had a choice right now between having Jesus come and be the pastor of your church or to come and be a part of your ministry team or to have the Holy Spirit inside you, which one would you choose? Be honest. Let me ask yourself another way. If if you got a call here and, 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 and the voice on the other line said, hey, bad news, our pastor's resigned, you'd be sad, right? Good news is we have a, a new candidate. It's Jesus of Nazareth. 
He's going to lead our pastor and, pre- and he's going to lead our church and priest. And you'd be overjoyed. Are you, as, are you as overjoyed that you were going home with the fullness of the Spirit and the same fullness of the Spirit in the lives of the people that you lead? That shows you that whatever Jesus meant by John 16, 7, we're pretty far away from really understanding it. You know, it is, it, 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 it is the power of Jesus multiplied in the lives of ordinary believers who are carrying the gospel into the community that is the place where the greatness of the church lies and the key to its expansion, not gathering a group of people who, who, who just kind of bask in the anointing that one person carries. How we kind of program church success and how we think about it has turned that on its head because that's how we celebrate church success. You get a big group of people who come and admire the anointing on one guy and one worship team. That is not what Jesus was talking about when he said, the greater works than I have done, you will do. The greater works are not through God increasing his anointing on one person as much as it is him multiplying it in leaders all throughout the church. If you go through the book of Acts and you count up the number of miracles in the book of Acts, there are 40 of them. Go through and list them out and what you'll find, 39 out of 40 happen outside of the church which means the one place God seems to do the least of his work is inside the church, at least based on percentages. I always tell our people that that means that as a pastor who works inside the church, I've got access to 140th of the power of God. I know that's not great hermeneutics, but you understand kind of the point, right? I mean, the point is the Holy Spirit wants to work through the people in the community, not just through the pastor in the pulpit. And that's what you're gonna see here in Acts 16 is you're gonna see the Holy Spirit pour himself out in and through, it is the Apostle Paul, but it is in the community through three gospel encounters. And I believe that Luke uses these three encounters to show us a pattern for how the gospel goes forward in a secular context. Let's begin down in verse 13, if you got your Bible there. Here's encounter number one. On the Sabbath day, we went outside of the city gate by the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the woman gathered there. The women gathered there. Verse 14, a God-fearing woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, was listening. The Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. If you're taking notes, just write down Lydia. Here she's our first kind of test case. Who was she? She was a wealthy businesswoman. Think put together, driven, brilliant, well-respected. She is obviously religious. She had chosen to go to a prayer meeting, but she is not yet a Christ follower. How does she get saved? How does she come to faith in Christ? Well, Paul engages her essentially in, think of it as an evangelistic Bible study. And while he is speaking to her, verse 14, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Pay attention, there's a Greek word that's used for addiction to alcohol. In other words, as she heard this gospel, she became drawn to it, enticed by it, as if it became a craving. She just had to have more and more of it the more that she heard. That's Lydia. She's the first kind of person that gets saved. Verse 15, after she and her household were baptized, she urged us, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us, which sets us up for encounter number two. Once Luke says, verse 16, as we were on our way to prayer, again, going back to that same place, because that's where they started their evangelism was with the religious seekers. A slave girl met us who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She made a large profit for her owners by fortune telling. Now, this girl, this slave girl, is the opposite of Lydia. Scholars say she was probably somewhere in her mid-teens. She was a slave, and she has a demon, which means she is a physical and a spiritual captive. This girl is not on her way to prayer meeting, right? I mean, she can't. Even if she wanted to go, she couldn't because she was a slave. Second, she had no interest in going. Verse 17, as she followed Paul, and as she cried out, as she 
And she followed Paul and, and us, and she cried out as she did, these men who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation, these are the servants of the Most High God. She did this for many days, and Paul was greatly annoyed. By the way, I love little phrases like that to show us that Paul was a real guy. It wasn't that Paul, full of the Spirit, was deeply concerned with compassion and wept on his, you know, no, he just like, he was ticked off. After many days, right, he turns to the Spirit and said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out right away. Paul recognized that her praise was not sincere, but demonically inspired to discredit their message, so he cast out the demon. The assumption is that Luke includes this story because this girl goes on to become a practicing member of the Philippian church. Um, that's what scholars say. That's why he includes it in there, assuming that it's true. I can't prove that's true, but assuming that it's true, let's just ask the question, how does this girl get saved? And the answer is through an act of deliverance, not through an evangelistic Bible study, but through an act of deliverance, which also, of course, removes her as a circus act for her masters to make money on, which sets us up for encounter number three, verse 19. When her owners realized that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. The crowd joined in the attack against them and the chief magistrates stripped off their clothes and ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they had severely flogged them, they threw them in jail, ordering the jailer to guard them carefully. Receiving such an order, he put them into the inner prison and secured their feet in the stocks. Here we meet person number three, the Philippian jailer. You got Lydia, you got the slave girl, now you got the Philippian jailer. Now, who is this guy? Well, jailers were often highly decorated Roman soldiers who were given as retirement gifts after a lifetime of faithful service. They were given jails to run. That's what Roman history teaches us. He's older, he's part of the ruling class, he's privileged, he's seen a lot of things in his life, and so he's hardened. I'm sure he was cynical. He puts Paul and Silas, it tells us, into the inner prisons. Inner prisons were usually the lowest part of the building down under the ground. It was disgusting. It's where all the filth and the mud and the, um, the dankness, the fecal matter, everything, the, the thing just ran down into the inner prison. It was dark. It was, um, it, was, it was in every way a dungeon. He puts their feet in the stocks. By the way, when you think, I don't think modern stocks, like you got your picture taken at Williamsburg, Virginia in, you know, you and your sister when um, you were out there on vacation. This is Roman stocks for chains that were suspended from the ceiling that had little clasps on the end and they would lay you on your back. They would put your feet in the um, chain there and they would pull it up until barely your shoulders were touching the ground so that you were just suspended there. It was unbelievably painful. Um, while your feet are up there in the stocks, they would strike the bottom of your feet. It was a form of torture. So um, this has been a brutal evening for them. First 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the jail were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open, and everybody's chains came loose. Verse 27, when the jailer woke up and saw the doors of the prison standing open, he drew his sword and was going to kill himself since he thought the prisoners had escaped. That was, of course, because in those days, if you lost your prisoners, you paid with your own life. Verse 28, but Paul called out in a loud voice, Serves you right, you cruel bigot. No, he says, don't harm yourself. Don't harm yourself because we are all here. Now, here's the question you got to ask as you're reading this. Why is Paul still there, right? I mean, the, 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 the walls are down. The chains are off. He's innocent. He, 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 knew he, didn't, he knew he shouldn't be in prison. And hadn't the same thing happened, by the way, to Peter in Acts 12, right? Just a few like, weeks before. And what did Peter conclude when it happened? Peter concluded an angel had come to let him out because he was innocent. So you can hear Paul saying, finally, you came to get me out. This is what I deserve. But somehow, Paul recognizes this is part of the plan of God to reach Philippi. 
I mean, hadn't he prayed that God would use him to reach the people of Philippi? Well, yeah. Evidently, he figured that this was part of the answer to that prayer. So watch this. Paul stands there with his freedom on his right hand, a freedom he deserves, and on his left hand, a Roman soldier who had probably tortured him the night before. Watch, and Paul turns away from his freedom, which he deserves, and turns back to the Roman soldier who had been so unkind to him and spoke words of rescue to him. Maybe, by the way, you can see why this was so moving to the jailer. It's not the earthquake that shook the jailer. It was Paul's response to the earthquake that shook the jailer. Verse 29, the jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell down um, trembling before Paul and Silas. He escorted them out and he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, they said, do, there's nothing you can do. Salvation is not something you do. It's something that has been done for you. So believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and all of your household, which is of course one of the simplest, shortest statements of the gospel in the Bible, believe and it's done. Verse 32, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him along with everyone in the house. He took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds right away. He and all his family were baptized. He brought them into the house, set a meal before them, and rejoiced because he had come to believe in God and trust Jesus with his entire household. Again, this story, this chapter contains three stories of people who come to faith in Christ. Surely, lots of people trusted Christ during Paul's time in Philippi. So as good Bible students, we got to ask ourselves, why did why did, why did Luke choose these three? What is special about these three stories and what is Luke trying to show us through these three stories? Here are two things I think he's trying to show us. If you're taking notes, here's letter A. He's trying to show us that the gospel is for all people at all times, that the gospel is for everybody. He chose three people that could not be more different. You had a, you had a, you had a rich woman, a religious woman, you had a slave girl, and you had a Philippian jailer. And there is no other context in that city or in anywhere in the ancient world where those three would have come together. You know, according to the Siddur, I think that's how you pronounce it, it was the Jewish prayer book of that era, written by the rabbis. We know, we know, according to the Siddur, that every morning a Jewish rabbi prayed three things, which Paul had been, of course. Every morning a Jewish rabbi would, would, would say, God, I thank you that I'm not, watch this, a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. Do you think it is coincidental at all that that is what Luke chose to be the three people that come to faith in Christ in the story of the gospel going into Philippi? Luke is showing us that in Christ, societal enemies become family, and that is the sign that the power of God is at work in the people. Rodney Stark, another great church historian, wrote the book, The Rise of Early Christianity, is a book you definitely should have on your shelf and reference because he just tracks what was it about the early Christians that made the gospel go forward so quickly. And he says one of the things that made it spread so quickly was the church was the only place in the Roman Empire where people of different classes and genders and different races came together and treated one another as equals. He said, and that was a unity that the Roman culture wanted to know how to see replicated in its society, but didn't know. They want diversity, but they don't know how to achieve unity in diversity. And Rodney Stark says it was in the church that they found what they were looking for, and it was one of the things that made the gospel so appealing because the church gave witness to the power of the gospel through the diversity, the unity of diversity in the community. Paul would call this in Ephesians 3.10, the sign of the manifold wisdom of God. I sometimes will ask myself, what is it, Ephesians 3.10, that is the sign of God's power and wisdom to our community? It's not the relevance of my sermons. I mean, I'm sure that's helpful. You know, it's not that I just come in and I just unload the wisdom of God on everybody. 
It's not that the, in, the, in the music gets to a point that everybody feels, you know, tingly and, oh, that was the power of God. Paul, when he in Ephesians says, you want to talk about an experience of the power of God in the local church? It's when you got a group of people who would have nothing in common outside the church come together and confess that they are one race that is afflicted by one problem, sin, and they have one common hope, Jesus, that in Christ there really is no difference in the Jew or the Greek or the black or the white or the rich or the old or the Republican or the Democrat or the immigrant or the citizen or the religious or the irreligious. The same Lord over all is rich unto all who call upon him that whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It is a diversity that we can demonstrate that the world craves but doesn't know how to achieve. You understand this, and I, I say this as a pastor of a very large church, but a group of people getting together, we always think about a, a big group of people being the sign that the power of God is working. It is not. A group of people that got to get together to hear a, a decently entertaining speaker and listen to great music is not a sign of the power of God. That happens at the Grand Ole Opry every single night, right? What is a sign of the power of God is when people who would not have anything in common otherwise come together around a common hope in Jesus that exceeds, that goes beyond the diversity of opinion that they have in culture or their backgrounds. By the way, that's a diversity that can extend even into politics. I mean, that's something that I think we really deal with now. Um, uh, you know, it's uh, one of the things I love to point out to our church is that um, when Jesus calls his 12 disciples, and, and, and the, you know, Matthew and Luke list them out for us. Both Matthew and Luke identified that Matthew was a tax collector and Simon, this other guy, was a zealot. You could not get more opposite of political opinion on the most pressing political issue of the day than those two guys. Because we're dealing with the Roman occupation of Israel and the tax collector said, hey, you got to go along with them. And the zealot said, you got to kill them. Right? So we're talking pretty far apart. And, here, and, when, and when Matthew talks about them coming, he identifies them as, it's like, you know, Matthew the Republican and, you know, the Simon the Democrat. So they retain, you know, some of their convictions coming in. And I'm sure they had some incredibly incendiary conversations around the campfire. And I'm sure Jesus was entertained as he watched them. And they, you know, we kind of asked questions to set them up so they would argue. But the point was, the point was, listen, they found something in unity in Christ that exceeded even their differences and the best political strategies for dealing with the problems in the situation. I mean, I, I've got all kinds of political opinions. If you know me for 10 minutes, you know that I'm not short of opinions on anything. And my wife says, often wrong, never in doubt. <laughs> um, so that's, that's just, so I've got opinions on everything and I think they're informed opinions and I hold them with deep conviction, but I just realized that when it comes to being a gospel minister that the basis of our unity is not that we all line up on the same page of every single issue. I'm not talking about moral issues, by the way. I'm not talking about things outlined in the Bible. But we're not all necessarily going to line up here, but that's okay because we got something in Jesus that outweighs what makes us different here. And I don't even want to encumber my pulpit with a bunch of political opinions because I know that what I'm offering to people is Jesus and not a strategy for how to fix America. Sometimes I'll tell our congregation, I might be wrong in my opinion on global warming, but I am not wrong about the gospel. And so I don't want my opinions on the former to keep people from hearing me on the latter. Um, there is a unity that you see that comes from um, Luke demonstrating the gospels for all kinds of people. And it comes when the gospel is big and those other things are small. So that's the first thing that these stories are in there for. The second reason that Luke records them, I believe, is to show us, letter B, if you're taking notes, is how to engage different kinds of unbelievers in our city. As I've told you, there are three different kinds of people in our community who need to be reached in three different ways. We've already gone through them, so let me just talk a little bit about the strategy for each of them and give you a couple stories, and then I'll be finished. And number one, Lydia. You've got a Lydia representing the spiritually interested person. She doesn't know the gospel yet, but she thinks about the things of God, and she migrates toward the places of worship. 
How do you engage the Lydia's of your community? Paul engages her in a spiritual conversation and studies the Bible with her. There are still a lot of people in our community who fit this profile. And I would say that particularly my generation and below needs to remember that the previous generation before us had really good ways of engaging them and we can't forget those. It just comes from running a magnet over the sand constantly to see where God is working. It's one of the reasons my mentors in seminary told me is that I never sit longer than 15 minutes with anybody on a plane without at least asking them some kind of spiritual question because I just don't know when God is working in somebody. And my role is to find the Lydia that is just in the middle of asking the question, right? I mean, I was raised in the kind of church that we did door-to-door evangelism as your first sign of sanctification. Anybody else there? I mean, I literally, this is not a joke. I got saved on a Friday morning. I went soul winning on Wednesday afternoon, like four days later. Hi, my name's J.D. Greer from the Salem Baptist Church. If you died tonight, you know for sure, 100% for sure where you would spend eternity. I'm not sure why we thought everybody would die at night, but we just assumed that you would die at night. But I, that, was, that was my first act of sanctification. And I went soul winning all through my high school career, right? And yeah, we, our church doesn't do that same exact strategy now, but there was something in that where it just taught me to ask the question because you just don't know where God is working. Not um, awful long ago, it was a little while ago, I was hanging out with a guy that, um, his name was Ivan. Um, it, it wasn't his real name, it was his nickname because he reminded the group of guys that I was hanging out with, uh, reminded us of Ivan Drago on Rocky IV. Anybody remember that? One of the greatest movies of all time. Um, but he was like six foot six, he was huge, he was a beast, but he was just, he was, but he, he cussed like nobody I've ever heard in my life. I mean, I mean, it was like, I mean, I, I obviously don't curse, but it was like, I mean, it was like an art form to him. The things he would string together, you're like, I don't cuss, but that was impressive. You know, but he, um, he would put them together. And one time, um, you know, it, I got kind of used to it. But one time he just let out a string of words and it include like, included like the queen mother of all curse words where you curse God's name. And, just, you know, it's just not funny, right? And I just, you know, I got filled with the Holy Spirit. I just felt my courage. And I'm only like six foot. He's like, I'm kidding you, not like six foot six. I got... And I put my finger in his face and I said, Ivan, you need to shut your mouth because one day you're going to stand before God. And when you stand before God, it says that every single thing that you've ever done is going to be, you know, you're going to be held accountable for that. And my friend, the last thing that you want to stand before God with is a record full of curse in his name. And then the Holy Spirit totally left me just <laughs> by myself. <laughs> I'm out, you know, and I turned around and I literally turned and walked away because I was like, I'm not sure what just happened there. And I heard these big footsteps and he comes and he walks around and he stands right in front of me and he says, what did you say? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> you know, so, I, <laughs> so I, I, I tried to repeat best I could and I looked at him and something happened in his face. He said, he was, man, I, he goes, I, God knows I didn't mean that. And I said, well, I don't know if he knows that. You should probably tell him that. And he said, man, he goes, I said, I said, Ivan, what's going on? And he said, he said, he, he got, he got this tear. I'd never, I didn't even have any emotions. And he, he says, um, he said, I just came back from a doctor's appointment three days ago and they found something on me that they think is skin cancer. And my dad died of skin cancer. And I'm just trying to figure out how to process this. And now you're talking to me about standing before God. We spent the next hour, then literally the next hour, just talking through the things of the gospel and I walked him through the room, and he was listening, and his heart was engaged. Well, we were sitting out, you know, and, and this road that was running along beside us, all of a sudden this car comes through it, and um, another car comes by and um, uh, hits this, you know, T-bones this car going 45, 50 miles an hour, and this car that was, had two teenagers in it um, rams it up, and it lands um, on the, you know, where they're both trapped inside, and um, 
people run over to try to help and uh, we see it happen. So we, we run over there and these two guys are trying to pick it up. And my friend Ivan, he goes over and he hits that car. Just like, it was like a watch. It was a, he hits it. He lifts it up like the Hulk. And, and this kid, I mean, he didn't, he wasn't dead, but he, he was messed up. And because we were witnesses of the accident, we had to stay there for about an hour to wait for the police to come and talk about it and everything. And I'm standing there and we didn't talk a whole lot anymore. He was pretty shell-shocked with it. And I remember he, 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 after about 20 minutes of silence, he just said, um, he wouldn't even look at me. He said, he said, skin cancer. He said, um, you telling me that I'm going to stand before God and this kid, we almost see him die in a car wreck. He, he looks at me and he says, JD, do you think God is trying to speak to me? <laughs> I said, no man, God is screaming at you, Ivan. <laughs> And uh, I had the privilege of leading Ivan to faith in Jesus Christ um, that very afternoon. All I'm saying is the reason you find stories like that is because you do what Paul does with Lydia and you just run the magnet over the sand. You ask the questions. You are engaged in people's lives and you see where God is working. That's how you reach person number one. But here's the problem. For most churches, evangelism, if they do it at all, stops there. With those kind of people, we're doing our secret services, and occasionally we'll send people out to share the gospel, but there are two other kinds of people, and they won't be reached by inviting them to church. That slave girl will never show up at the place of prayer, neither will the Roman soldier. Physically, she can't, and the Roman soldier just won't. And every year, there is more and more people who fit into those two categories. British friend of mine, his name's Steve Timmis, pastor over outside of London, he says that it references a recent study that shows that 70% of British people, 70%, on a recent survey show that they have no intention of ever attending a church service. That didn't mean like they're mad at the church and they just won't ever go in. It just means that they're thinking about their life and thinking I have no reason to ever go into a church. Not for a marriage, not for a funeral, not for a Christmas Eve service, 70%. Here's what he says, and I quote, that means that new styles of worship will not reach them. Fresh expressions of church will not reach them. Great first impressions teams will not reach them. Churches meeting in cool venues will not reach them. They're all they're reaching are Lydia's. The vast majority of unchurched and de-churched people would not turn to the church, even if faced with difficult personal circumstances or in the event of national tragedies. It is not a question of improving the product of church meetings and evangelistic events. It means reaching people apart from meetings and events. Now, Great Britain is a few years ahead of the United States in secularization. I, I get that. We still have big attendances at Easter Sundays and Christmas Eve services, and they work. But where Great Britain is, America shows signs of heading to. You see, the amount of people checking none for religious affiliation, as you've heard, grows at an astounding rate every year, which means that they're just not going to be in churches for us to preach awesome stuff to them. I think I used to be a missionary over in a Muslim country. There was a mosque about 100 yards from my house, 100 yards, right? I never went into that mosque, not the entire time that I lived overseas, I would not have gone into the mosque if I had fallen on hard times. I would not have gone in there if the imam were doing a really helpful series on relationships. I wouldn't have gone in there if he told jokes. I wouldn't have gone in there if they'd added a, a, an electric guitar and a kick and drum loop to the Arabic prayer chant. I wouldn't have gone in there if they had Disney-esque first impressions. It's just a different world. Why would I go in there, right? It's a different world to which I did not belong. That's why many people are starting to see the church, which means that you're going to have to reach them outside the church, which means you've got you to stop just reaching Lydia's and you've got to think about the other two groups. So how are we going to engage the other two groups? Here's the second group, the physical and spiritual captive. How are they reached? Just like Paul, we've got to get involved in their lives through acts of physical, spiritual, and economic deliverance. I think of a guy named Donald who is a, a new believer who sits on the front row every week at our church. 
I met him through a prison ministry that we have at our church. It's one of our most vibrant ministries we have. Um, after these kind of, uh, we have this program where we go in there and we do Bible studies. We actually have a campus in one of the prisons now um, where it's, it's a part of our church. Uh, one of the um, uh, leaders in that ministry came to me, or actually, excuse me, one of the prisoners who become a Christian came to me with a concern. And they said, hey, I just want you to know that one of the guys coming to our campus now is a Muslim. And not just any Muslim, but he is the head of the Muslim community in our prison. And he said, I'm concerned because a lot of the Muslims cause problems and we think he might come in just to instigate some stuff. And so they, I said, we'll talk to him. And they talked to him and, and this guy agreed that he would be peaceable and if he would be peaceable, then he could come. Right? And they asked him, why? You know, why, why are you coming? And what he said was this, I know some of the guys in the program and I've watched how this has changed them. I've watched what this interaction with God's word has done with them and I wanna know what they know about God because as a Muslim, I'm an, I'm an expert on God. When the class ended, we have a special discipleship class that goes along with the, the campus. This guy in the very last week, he just wept. So he said, I love this group. I'm not a Christian, but I'm touched by your love for me. As he um, got close to his release date, the prison we work with has a program where they will allow them to go out on the weekend for about six hours. They have a sponsor family from our church. And so a lot of our people in our church sign up to these sponsor families and Donald signs up and uh, the place we bring them is to our church. And he said, I know that I wanna go there. Let me tell you what happened next to the words of um, the lady who directs this ministry at our church. She said, the second time he came on weekend release to the summit, I was up front at the end of the service as a prayer counselor. Marcelo, who was his sponsor, and Donald, that was this guy's name, came to me after the service weeping. Donald told me that he needed Jesus, that he'd been confused with scripture. I told Donald to pray and tell God what was on his heart, and then I would close in prayer. Donald thanked God for pursuing him and for opening up his heart to the truth. He thanked him for forgiving him and for paying the penalty for his sins, that he wanted to live a life to bring him glory. And then I prayed for him, and he looked up at me, and he shared that he felt like the whole world had just lifted up off of his shoulders. That afternoon at lunch with the other prisoners, because we have a, a lunch there on campus for him, Donald asked if he could share with his peers his decision, so he stood up and just shared his testimony with everybody. He'd been saved for about an hour. All the men from Wake Correctional who attend the summit each week gathered around him and laid their hands on him and told him they would be there to stand with him and support him because he was going to go back to his Muslim community that afternoon and tell them what he had found and discovered in Jesus. He revealed to them that afternoon that God had revealed to him that Jesus was truly the son of God, God incarnate, that he had to believe what God had revealed to him, even if it meant that he lost everything else. And even if it means they rejected him from their community, he shared boldly with fellow captives and he's continuing there and to stand. Shortly after that, by the way, I baptized him. Um, he joined our church. He got released from prison and now he attends faithfully every single week um, at the Summit Church. Now I point all that out, listen. <laughs> You're not reaching guys like that by having awesome sermons and by telling funny stories or by having kick and worship, you know, or, and cutting edge stuff. The only way to do that is to enter into captivity with them, to walk with them, to help deliver them, to be in the communities, to live among the homeless, in the pregnancy clinics. It's why we developed something at our church. Um, it's a five-pronged strategy where we just, we said, um, I met with the mayor several years ago and I just met with him and said, tell me the most broken places in our city. And he, he brought up prisons was one of them. The homeless was one. The orphan and foster care was another. Um, unwed mothers, the problem of single households, um, high school dropouts. Those were the five that he mentioned. So I came back to our church and said, there it is. There's our strategy for engaging our city. And that's where we're going to go find the people that are in the category that we call with this slave girl. That's the only way that you get to them. Here's number three, the Philippian jailer, the skeptic. Or you might say, if you're taking notes, the cynic. The cynic got saved because of two things, I think you could point out. One is he observed Paul and Silas, their inexplicable joy in the midst of pain, right? 
But secondly, don't miss this part. He was the recipient. This guy was the recipient of their extravagant grace, right? Freedom on his right hand, captivity on his left. He goes into captivity. That's grace. Let's talk about those really quickly. Um, A joy and suffering. Why were they singing in the midst of such pain? Now, for the sake of time, because I'm coming up on the end of my time, I don't have long to press into this. But here's just the question. What if we in the church, especially in the coming days, looked at pain or persecution or even discrimination, not as God's punishment, not as going backwards in the community, but as first and foremost, a chance for us to put on display an otherworldly joy? What if our first instinct in pain was not, God, what did I do wrong? Or God, why don't you love me? Or God, what's, what's, what's happening here? Why are you, aren't you in control? But God, whose life are you trying to use me in? One of the best um, things I saw with this, you know those cardboard testimonies? You, you ever seen those uh, churches? We're not the only church that's ever done them, but you basically have somebody that comes up and they have on one side a, a short description of what their life was like before Christ. And then they flip it over and it's what their life is like after Christ. If you've never done it, it's pretty awesome. You play, you know, sentimental music behind him, and it's, it's a powerful moment. Um, so uh, best one I've ever seen. Um, woman comes up. Actually, two people walked up on stage, and um, the woman has, uh, she flips over her card first, and on her card, it says this. It says, um, diagnosed with advanced, advanced breast cancer. Then he flips his over, this guy. It was a doc, um, and his says, doctor who treated her, and then it said, agnostic. He flips his over, Um, to the other side, and his says, through her hope in the midst of trial, came to faith in Christ. Then she flips hers over and says, worth it. (laughs) That's what it says on on the front there. And I thought, that's it right there. What if in the midst of whatever you go through, your first instinct was, God, who are you trying to demonstrate how awesome you are by the joy that I can have? I was watching one of these TV evangelists. I don't have time for this story, I'm gonna tell it anyway. I was watching one of these TV evangelists one time and I won't tell you where he's from, but he was from Texas. And um, I saw him in North Carolina, and he had his big smile on the thing. And he said, he, he, he said this. He said, he said, he said um, God has told me that you need to give this ministry. Some of you out there in deep credit card debt. God has revealed to me that if you will finish up what's lacking on your credit card, right? If you've got $1,500 room space there, if you will put this ministry and you give a donation on your credit card, God has promised me that you will have your, your bills cut in half. You will have your, your debt cut in half by the end of the year, right? And then he says this. This is the part that got me, as if the first part didn't. He said the first part, he said, he said, and your neighbors will be amazed when you are driving that new BMW, and they will say, what is different in your life? And you will smile and say, the blessing of God. And I thought, your neighbors are not gonna be amazed when you're happy driving a new BMW. We're all happy when we drive a new BMW. When your neighbors are amazed, is you're driving that same old piece of junk you've been driving for 15 years and you get out of the car with a smile on your face and you say, I got a better joy in Jesus than a new car or even a healed body or even being out of debt. There is a, a divine opportunity in the midst of pain. You see with Paul and Silas, it gives us a chance to put him on display. Here's the, the second thing there. The second part of that is the cynical jailer got saved because of Paul's inexplicable joy and because he chose to show extravagant grace. Nothing puts the gospel on display quite like generosity. Whether we're talking about generosity of income or the generosity of forgiveness, as you see here in Paul's life, or any other kind of generosity. And there is, listen to this, there's nothing that gets the attention of cynical Roman soldiers. And let's use that metaphorically. In our society, right? I don't, you can put whoever you want in there. You can put the educational establishment, the media, 
the government. Nothing gets their attention and nothing convinces them of the truth of Christianity like the extravagant generosity of the church. That's why Francis Schaeffer used to say, love on display is the ultimate apologetic of the church. Okay, last story, and then I'm gonna wrap this up. I've been wrapping up for like 10 minutes, but this really is a wrap up. Okay, you ready? Several years ago, I was preaching through the book of Acts. And I got to Acts chapter eight, just working my way through it, where it says that Philip went into this new city, Samaria, and because of the message he preached and the works that he did, there was much joy in the city. So I asked our congregation what I thought was a very good application point. Is there much joy in a city as a result of our being here? Well, at our next like pastor, elder, or deacon meeting, we discussed that question and we concluded the answer was no. If you just think about it on the surface, are, are, are people really happy that we're in the community? Well, I got next week, preach on Acts 9. And in Acts 9, at the end of it, is a story of a disciple named Tabitha, whose nickname was Dorcas, um, but her name, you know, Tabitha slash Dorcas, that when she died, the community gathered at her bedside and wept because of all the clothes that she'd made for them. And so I asked them, do you feel like anybody in our community, if we died as a church, would weep? Again, we thought the answer was no, because our church's strategy was to grow a big gargantuan, you know, congregation and, you know, just kind of dominate the, you know, community and you know, just six flags over Jesus, and kind of, th that was our strategy. And if we died, they'd be like, that's one less mail out in our, you know, um, thing at Easter we got to deal with, and one less person knocking on our door at random times. And, and so we just said, we're going to change our strategy. That's when I met with the mayor, by the way, and said, you tell me where the city is in need and broken, and let me, so the mayor gave me the strategy, and we just started pursuing it. We've been pursuing it now for over a decade. A lot of stories I could tell with it, but um, we got involved in the schools, got involved in the foster care, got involved in all the prisons, and, um, a few years ago, I got a call in November from the mayor's office. And the mayor, I live in Durham, that's technically where our church is. Um, mayor of Durham says, I want you, or through his assistant, his assistant said, we want you to come and speak at the city's annual Martin Luther King Jr. rally. Now, that's a big deal in our city. Like a lot of cities in the South, we have a long history with the MLK stuff and it's not pretty. And like, we want you to be the speaker. And my question was, why? Right? I was like, I'm not your typical Martin Luther King Jr. speaker. I, I, we can all understand that, right? And I, I was like, why? He said, and, uh, and the girl, she said, she said, she said, this is after all, I could ask her a bunch of questions and I, I definitely annoyed her. And she was like, after all, she was like, she's like, she's like, I don't know. You're gonna have to talk to the mayor about this, but he's busy right now. Can you do this or not? Now, this, by the way, is a big deal. It's televised. It's a big, all the government officials have to, you know, come to it. So, um, uh, you know, I was like, okay, yeah, I'll do it. She's like, you got 20 minutes. You're the keynote speaker in the middle of the thing. It's on TV, you know, on, on, on public broadcasting. You got 20, I was like, what am I supposed to talk about? She said, I don't know. He asked you to be the speaker. You know, can you think of, I, was like, I can think of something to talk about. And she said, just don't be controversial. That was her one request. And I said, well, if you give me 20 minutes with a TV camera on, I'm going to talk about Jesus. She goes, oh, that's fine. He's not controversial. I said, I don't think you know him. And so, um, <laughs> so I, um, uh, they came and um, I was backstage. And you know, I mean, if you speak in front of people a lot, you don't, I mean, it's like anything else. You, don't, you stop getting nervous. So I don't get nervous much in front of crowds. But I was nervous. I mean, for this thing, I'm, I'm, we're talking like, Joel Osteen about to preach of the Gospel Coalition, nervous, okay? That's kind of how I felt. And I think it was obvious, you know, I was like back there in the 
county manager, county manager comes up to me and he puts his, he said, he said, you look nervous. Yeah, I said, yeah, he'd been to our church a few times. He's like, I don't think I've ever seen you nervous. He said, why are you nervous? I said, man, I don't know why I'm here. Like, I don't know why, man, I know what I'm doing, but I don't know why I'm here. He said, oh, he goes, I can answer that for you. I'll make you feel better. He said, I'll tell you why you're here. He says, because every, we said, we had our little city council meeting, our government meeting, and we were talking about this day. He said, and he said, everywhere, what we concluded was that everywhere in this city that there's something broken, there's somebody there from the Summit Church that's trying to fix it. I'm not even saying y'all are doing a great job. He said, but you're there. <laughs> he said, we didn't think of anything. We wanted to platform more on Martin Luther King Jr. Day than the spirit that is at work in your church. So that's why you're here. So I stood up there and I gave the respect that Martin Luther King Jr. deserves. And then I spent my 15 minutes after those five minutes, I, I spent the next 15 minutes talking about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And though he was rich for our sakes, he became poor. And that group, when I got to the end, they stood and they gave a standing ovation. And I knew in that moment, I was like, they're not standing for me. They're standing for the spirit of Jesus that is at work in them the way it was at work at Paul and Silas. It may not be as dramatic, but it, it, it just meant that, 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 that that's the way that you put on display Jesus to the cynical Roman soldiers. It's the way when we had a foster care um, person just tell us recently, um, somebody they asked, they were interviewing somebody who had applied from our church to be foster care. And they said, why do you want to do this? And they said, well, we do it because God rescued us. And so we want to, you know, if we can be a part of the rescue of others. And the, 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 the couple said, the doctor put her pen down and she looked at them and said, you go to the summit church, don't you? And she said, how do you know? She said, well, because we hear that answer all the time. And she said, by the way, by the way, the foster care conversation changed in our county. And she talked about the year that we made that decision years ago to be a blessing to our community. That is how you get engaged with the cynical Roman soldiers. It's the only way. The promises of Jesus for the success of his church are certain. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The path is certain. It's through these three ways aggressive preaching, extravagant displays of generosity that we grab the attention. That's what the gospel will look like going forward in the future. Proclamation followed by extravagant demonstration is the way that we reach the three different kinds of people, I think, in the, in the future. Thanks for listening to the ERLC podcast. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Podcast and leave us a review. Join us next week as we hear a message from Russell Moore about cultural engagement.